When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game betting odds on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit wynnbet.com to start winning. The biggest takeaways from the Zero RB watch and stealing signals. That's what we're talking about today on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. Find me on Twitter at Yards for Gretsch. Find my Substack, Stealing Signals Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. And with me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find his Zero RB watch at Rotoviz and everything else that he does over at Rotoviz, the Rotoviz OT pod, several fantastic things. Sean, how are you doing? Awesome. It was a lot of fun to write up the AFC version of the Zero RB watch this week. And one of the interesting things I thought was the kind of looking back at the week, uh, both conferences combined, the RB1 tier, we had 12 backs who scored 16 and a half points or more. Nine of those 12 backs were drafted late enough that it would have qualified to be not only outside the high value rounds there, but outside the dead zone. Ernest Johnson, somebody that we've liked, we kind of went back and forth a little bit on how we wanted to bid him in our individual leagues last week. Kind of my thought was that it's tricky because you're just going to get the one week. And so, you know, how much can you spend on that? How much have we spent already in some of the leagues? But it was really pretty clear that he's going to be the guy and then i mentioned to you before the show and this isn't something where like every week we're trying to find excuses for why zero rb works i mean it but it just it clearly works right we're trying to explain kind of what some of the dynamics are and something that i think gets lost during the off season when people are doing these macro approaches to strategy and trying to look at the overall numbers and explain how we would get to different places I think that we lose track of the fact where, you know, if you're not a zero RB advocate, you know, if you're not someone who's played the strategy for five or six, maybe 10 years on a high volume of leagues, so you're comfortable with, familiar with how it works out, is this idea that there are some very clearly startable backs who you know are going to get that workload that people are so infatuated with and with reason at the running back position. You know ahead of time that they're going to get it and maybe only for a week or two. But we've seen with Johnson, you know, on the Chicago side, you know, we've seen with Khalil Herbert, these guys who are going to get the workload. And at the running back position, it's not that talent doesn't matter. When we saw another, you know, big game from Jonathan Taylor, which is his overwhelming talent shining through. But 
guys, even at the Herbert and Johnson level, some players who maybe don't scream star, they can go out there and get a fantasy performance that will win you that week, not just kind of, you know, fill a void, but win the week. You know, Johnson leads the NFL in rushing yards in week seven. He looked fantastic on Thursday night. And if you bid on him or rostered him, you knew going in that he was going to be a solid starter for you with upside. Yeah. And I think the counter that a lot of people make is that it's not easy to get those guys. It's, you know, everybody's trying to add those running backs. Sure. But to your point, Sean, there have been guys like this every single week this year. We have had running backs to bid on every week. And I'm not saying that, you know, you would necessarily get all of them or that it's easy to get any of them or any of that, but you almost would have to do pretty poorly to have not had some of them. And you could have got unlucky and got the ones that didn't produce as well, but there's been, there's been a ton. I mean, we had, uh, you know, Daryl Williams was a, a big one last week. He wasn't as good this week. You know, Chuba Hubbard obviously was one in, in some leagues where he wasn't rostered. He wasn't available in every league, but we've had some of these starts. I, I, I can't even think back as far. You named a couple, obviously. But Johnson was maybe the clearest one. The The way that I tried to describe it this offseason when we talked about this was like not thinking of it as which players are going to be the most valuable running backs necessarily or like well, who's the, the player you're going to find, the one player that's your running back that solves your running back problem. But it's a puzzle throughout the season. How many points can I get out of my RB1 spot? How many points can I get out of my RB2 spot? And to your point, if you do acquire a guy like a Dearness Johnson, it's not like you're not trying to acquire him. If you do, or if you are able to get him and plug him in and he has these points, you're, I mean, you're definitely starting him, like you said, right? If you get him. And he wasn't actually that expensive. He wasn't as expensive as some of the other backs that we've seen in terms of percentages of fab. I saw some really uh, affordable Dearness Johnson bids, winning bids. If you are able to get him and you play him, yeah, maybe you only start him for one week, but like that contributes to your RB2 whatever score for the season, however you want to think about that, or RB1 maybe, I don't know. Depends on how zero RB you are and whether you found you know somebody sticking there. Certainly we'd like to find someone we can stick in there for a long period of time, but it is interesting to think about like if you have some guys that you can get by with, like you've been playing uh, Tony Pollard is like a guy that I've played in a lot of leagues where I'm getting eight to 10 points a week. It's great. You know, it's not amazing, but it's great. And then if I'm able to sit him some weeks where I'm able to plug in a Dernish Johnson and get these big splash weeks, ultimately my RB spot is not producing that much worse than some of the RB spots for people that's, that put in significant draft capital and aren't getting the big performances, obviously. I mean, it's not matching Derrick Henry, but it's not that far off from you know some of the middling performers that, that have gone a little bit high, uh, you know, higher in drafts. And so those you get those spike weeks from players that you added like you're saying, right? Just you plug in that one week, as long as you're able to have a baseline and you're not taking really, really poor scores, which I am doing in some leagues right now, it, it happens. But as long as you're able to have a baseline pretty much every week, the Zach Mosses or the Tony Pollards or those types, and then you have the Alexander Madison because you had him rostered, you plugged him in, and then you have the Derns Johnson you picked up and plugged in. And you do that a few times. Your running back position for the season, this Frankenstein running back position, scores well it doesn't score terribly at all and it could actually ultimately if if done correctly and if it works out and if you land earnest and all these things it could score very well it could be like one of the mid to upper level running back uh you know scoring teams in your fantasy league 
And, you know, you're going to have to be right about some things and get lucky on some things if you want to win, right? Only one out of six teams are going to win your fantasy championship. But you don't have to be perfect in terms of making those pickups in order to be in good shape. I mean, you're still going to have some of these guys that you drafted. I get a message in Slack every week from Michael Dubner, who does some really cool best ball workforce in the offseason, has a great DFS article during the week in season and his little slack message to me is, is just always about james connor and the one this one was just every single week right i mean james connor is in there uh, getting you that touchdown in that role that he's taken over from Kenyon drake so there are a variety of ways to play this and there are guys who you can draft who will emerge but you combine that with this weekly element from some of the other guys and you know, the downside is not as down as people think. The upside is much higher than they think. But one of the reasons why it was a fun week to write the Zero RB Watch is that uh, even with the buys and even just looking at one conference, I had 10 guys on the AFC side that I was interested in some level at adding to rosters this week. Now, you know that covers a variety of different formats. And maybe you can say, well, you know, just because the New England Patriot backs scored points, uh, in the game where they put up 54 against the hapless New York Jets doesn't mean those guys are valuable in the future, but they did demonstrate what some roles could be in this offense. And Mac Jones continues to show that like he's actually the guy along with Trevor Lawrence who's going to be a long-term starter at the QB position, which you know suddenly makes all of these Patriots backs a little more interesting again, including someone like a Brandon Bolton, who is finally getting to take the step from special teamer to the pass catching running back on a team that has solid wide receivers, but not target hogs. And so even in a game like this, where the Patriots are playing in a plus script, they're playing in this run heavy script, you know, he has a lot of targets. And so uh, there were opportunities all across the league. The one guy maybe I'm not that interested who, who actually played quite a bit this week. Um, it's, it's weird then with the Raiders, Josh Jacobs, has a chest injury that he would swear doesn't exist he was limited in his opportunities this week uh, Kenyon drake touched the ball 17 times and yet weirdly it was almost a bad news week for him because the raiders are demonstrating that they're actually willing to play Jalen richard who is responsible for one of the only passes from Derek carr that was not a positive development this week yeah no i wrote about that in signals as well um and you know, we're always recording this kind of before we've had a chance to see each other's work, but you're basically writing what I wrote. I, I wrote that Kenyon Kenyon Drake's you know 17 touches were essentially noise. 14 of them came after Josh Jacobs left. He left inside the two minute warning of the first half. That's when he got his last touch, and Drake had three touches at that point. And then Jalen Richard winds up running more routes than Drake. And I know you know I'm tending to look at routes more. You're tending to look at EP more. I I assume that. The, that's showing up in the EP that <clears throat> Richard had more receiving expected points. Drake did get, you know, all of the basically early down work, but what we have for Drake now is it is really kind of hard to explain because they signed him to a really substantial contract. But what we have on him is Jacobs goes down early and they lean into Peyton Barber and then Jacobs is back. And for a few weeks, Jacobs has the most consistent route shares that he's had really in his whole career. Three straight weeks, I've been writing about it in Signals, where he's been looking closer to a workhorse. And Drake, even though he had the two-touchdown game, got 12 snaps, barely played. 
And so they were basically saying, look, even though Drake, you're doing some things, we're leaning into Josh Jacobs. And that's how the first half of this game went, where Jacobs was the guy. He had three receptions. He was running the routes again. He's starting to actually build out this receiving role and look like, you know, I was wrong on Josh Jacobs, but Kenyon Drake, nowhere to be seen, essentially. And then Jacobs leaves in this game and they prioritize Jalen Richard from a routes perspective in the second half. And so now we basically have three different backs on this team that they've made a reason to deprioritize Drake for between Barber and then certainly Josh Jacobs going away from like right away in week one, it was sort of a split, but going away from that to where it was really pretty clearly Jacobs the last three weeks until this past week where he gets hurt, where Jacobs was the lead guy. And then Jacobs goes out another, you know, prioritizing Jalen Richard routes in a reasonably close game. And I've always been a big fan of Jalen Richard. I think he's great. Didn't play a lot until, or wasn't active until week five. He's only played three games and he's had a decent little role for weeks five, six, and seven. And so they're going on a bye. We'll see what happens after the bye, but certainly don't think you can look at Kenyon Drake's 17 touches and be like, oh yeah, he's going to have a big, and even the fact that, look, he was efficient and he was efficient in week six as well. But I don't think you can look at that and say, oh yeah, he's going to have a solid role after the break with any kind of confidence based on the way that they've prioritized basically every other back they have over giving him workhorse roles when the opportunities have presented it. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's tough in a week where he actually was extremely involved on the ground, moderately involved through the air, but they pretty clearly at this point have gone away from this preseason idea of, okay, he's going to have this dynamic passing game role. And without that, so much of your path to, you know, even if things break right for him to have, what someone who drafted him in the eight, nine, 10 range would have hoped for that's harder to find. So I think with the the kind of spike weeks that we've had recently, you know, you're going into the buy. We talk about when you go into the buy, sometimes that can be good camouflage for trying to sell these guys that you wanted to sell. Anyway, you can make the excuse of, well, I just, you know, I need to make a little move here. We also talked about some of the schedule based things. We saw again this past week, how, you know, some mediocre players against very weak schedules blew up. You know, better players against elite defenses can have some some trouble. It just changes your floor and your ceiling. The Raiders have the hardest playoff schedule for running backs, which, again, is just another little thing to keep in mind in terms of, like, what are the different scenarios? What are the different possibilities? If you're thinking in terms of Kenyon Drake as a potential playoff-winning running back, I think we have a number of signs here that that is actually not very likely. If – two or three other guys get hurt in the backfield, then maybe he'll get all the touches in those tough matchups and get you like eight points, right? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I mean, the fact that the receivers are emerging a little bit, the Hunter Renfro is playing so well as this possession receiver. I mean, they don't need some running back to go out there and run those routes. Brian Edwards has actually had a couple of decent games. I do think the fact that Derek Carr continues to break out in, in this post, I mean, he was one of the guys and, you know, Obviously, we won't talk a lot about the John Gruden stuff other than it, it is a, a big change for the team and a big change for the players. And Carr was someone who was very close with him, and he credits Gruden with making him believe that not only he could be an NFL starter, but he could be an above-average starter, perhaps a borderline star. To see him come out and have a game like this where you know he's 31 for 34, there's some real possibility for this Raiders passing attack to be dynamic over the second half of the season, to continue this emergence that they're having. Uh, if they can get both of the young guys and Ruggs and Edwards to do some of the things that they can get while they're healthy, I mean, that's a real dagger for them to have that injury to their most important offensive player. 
But if the passing offense is dynamic enough to carry the running backs inside the five consistently throughout the game and throughout the season, that's where I think Josh Jacobs then becomes interesting again as a potential steal of the draft kind of guy. He was obviously a very controversial player coming into this year. You know, what's his workload going to be? What's his talent going to be? You know, will the Raiders have a lot of goal line touches? There's the potential in this offense for whoever ends up being the running back to have some of those plays late in the season, but there's a lot working against them too. Is Jacobs a buy? I mean, he has had uh, the one thing he's always had going for him is a really, really strong percentage of the running back green zone touches. He always gets the work in there. And this is a, I, I hear you saying that I, I'm agreeing completely in my head. Like, yeah, this is a better passing game. Now it's a better offense. Now they're winning games. Jacobs is going to finish those drives off with touchdowns and up until this injury, and I'm putting air quotes around it because we don't know what, what the deal is. Jacobs has said he wasn't even hurt. He's on Instagram disagreeing with his you know new head coach. Up until that, at, right around halftime of this game, I mean, Jacobs still wound up running more routes than both Brashard and Drake. <laughs> you know, and they threw more in the second half and everything. I just, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. Jacobs, if he comes back and he's still running 55% of the routes, 50% of the routes, and he's got the green zone work on lock and the offense is pretty good, I mean, it might be a good time to go out and try and buy Josh Jacobs going into the buy. I think that he is someone that you can buy and sell a little bit in that the perception of his talent, maybe not with individual fantasy managers, but kind of with the community, really does swing pretty wildly, right? I mean, he's this guy who was a first-round pick, wasn't a great college player. He's got good size. He's decently athletic for that size. But he kind of fits into that range where whatever he did the previous week kind of defines how people see him as a talent. And anytime you have someone who is having the perception of the talent swing that wildly, I think you can get some really good buys and sells based on recent activity. And if you believe in the Raiders' offense now, then, yeah, I mean, there are some compelling reasons to add him because there will be points within this season, within next season, where you could perhaps sell him at a huge profit because there are going to be some big games that happen. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, yeah, you're you're talking dynasty. I was thinking more redraft, but even in the, in the dynasty concept, absolutely. Like if you were to buy him now going into the buy, He's hard. He's probably going to be a little hard, harder to acquire in dynasty. I would, I would suspect because the people who have him do tend to be more the believers. But in redraft, that you know, there's there's usually a little less attachment. Either way, if if you were to buy him now, you know, it depends on your redraft um, uh, trade deadline. A lot of a lot of people have trade deadlines reasonably close coming up. Uh, but whatever. I mean, if you're able to buy him, I think in in even in the next say after their buy in the next say three games he probably has a game where suddenly you can you can sell him at quite a profit sean what about uh there's a lot of interesting running back situations we talked a little about Jonas johnson what do we expect going forward I, I i kind of expect that we'll see chubb basically dominate he mostly dominated the backfield in early 2019 when kareem hunt was suspended and then last year, uh, Darren Johnson had a pretty strong game in the game that Chubb got injured in. He ran 13 times for 95 yards, I think it was, over 90 yards. And over the next four weeks, only got 15 total carries. Kareem Hunt really dominated. I don't think this – I think people think that this backfield is a split because they want to keep Chubb fresh or they want to keep Hunt fresh. I think they view it as a split because they have two really dynamic backs. And look, Dearness Johnson looked great. He'll probably earn a little bit more work potentially in the first game if Chubb is back this week. 
potentially we'll see a little bit more Darren Johnson and they don't necessarily go full, you know, I almost just said go full Chubb. <laughs> I said it anyway. But the following week and into the future until Hunt's back, I just think Chubb takes over the backfield to, to like a massive degree and Johnson doesn't really cut in. How, how do you see that playing out? That's how I see it play out. But we do have some situations where, you know, it's, it's so tempting to draw the full conclusion from what happened the previous time. And, you know, this situation could be a little bit different. I mean, this is coming off of another game here where he just looked absolutely fantastic, right? And we don't know for sure about the health. And so if the guy comes back completely healthy the previous time, they want to give him all the touches. You're in a game situation where all the touches make sense. You know, maybe you go that route. Now that they've had both of these guys injured, they've had their quarterback injured, they've had both of their main wide receivers injured. The, you know, Stefanski could be in a different headspace in terms of how he thinks that they need to play this to make sure that they have some guys ready. One of the things that happened on Thursday night was that the Browns go from a team that had jumped to the darkest timeline and are in free fall to a team suddenly where you're like, the overall talent on this team and the quality of the coaching staff puts them right back in the AFC conversation. Especially, it's just one more week, but I do think that it's also interesting, too, to think in terms of the 2021 season being the first one where you have 17 games, and you know, you look at some of these teams that are struggling, you know, like the Kansas City Chiefs, for example, they have a little bit more time to get back in. And that extra game gives them another shot at it. And so a team like the Browns that really seemed like they, they needed to break it down and already focus on 2022, you know, they're right back in the thick of things, and they look like the ascending team that they were heading into last year's playoffs that they looked like through the first month of this season. If they can keep some of those guys healthy, then they have a better shot at it. And so I think there might be more incentive to protect a Chubb now than there even, even was previously. Johnson's peripherals in terms of before and after contact, in terms of you know the things that he's doing at the second level, you know how he was able to even finish out that game. He had a fantastic game all the way up until the end. And then he makes some big runs to kill the clock on the final drive. I mean, this was a, a complete, full, well-rounded performance in every respect. And yeah, I, next week, it's going to be very, very difficult to start him unless you're desperate. But, you know, someone you're going to keep on your roster, obviously, I think that there might be another big game or two in the next month, considering just how good he was. I mean, he was probably the best back in the NFL last week. He was fantastic. I want to talk about Michael Carter. You wrote the AFC report. Haven't had a chance to look at it. I thought it was really interesting with this Mike White creative player that the Jets had as their backup quarterback taking over with, with Zach Wilson getting banged up that he basically only threw to the running backs. Uh, I've talked a lot about high value touches being sort of QB dependent and there can be some huge shifts sometimes. The Jets have a massive team high-value touch total, not just Carter, but Ty Johnson. They both catch a ton of passes. It's a season high for the Jets in terms of high-value touches by a ton. They had 16 in this game, which tied for the second most by any team all year. And Carter's role was bigger coming out of the bye. 72% snaps, up 20 percentage points from his previous season high, 59% routes. Uh, Tevin Coleman was a healthy scratch. They also go out and acquire Joe Flacco who I think might start now right out of the gate, probably over, over Mike white. 
I think that's his name. I don't know. I, maybe I called him something different a minute ago. I, I really, it's the most generic name ever. I don't think this is a real person. But Joe Flacco also throws to his running backs at an absolutely high, you know, very, very high rate. Has always been somebody that we can count on for running back high value touches for reception specifically. Michael Carter, I had been pretty down on. I, I think I have him on a couple of rosters here and there. I think he's a pretty easy plug and play in PPR leagues if he's going to be playing 70% of the snaps, running 60% of the routes, and going to now have a quarterback who's going to check down a ton. Yeah, that's a cool point about Joe Flacco because I think that the perception of him with those deep targets and inaccurate deep targets, but with the big arm kind of being his calling card, that you might lose some of those. What happened here for the Jets is a dream scenario for their running backs because uh, just that many targets and, and you don't have to be good, right? And that's a little bit what we were hoping for and got you know last year from Phillip Rivers. And so when you see those 14 catches on 16 targets, and that's five more receptions than Corey Davis, Jamison Crowder, and Elijah Moore uh, get on their 18, at least in part because Elijah Moore never catches any of his targets. Uh, nice to see him get the, the rushing score there. But yeah, I mean, you're talking about two backs here and i think that johnson is an interesting name for desperate owners because you have him as a good pass catching running back he's not necessarily going to be the starter he's going to be overlooked by people who are going with carter but the workload there for him too is something that will work and also with them very clearly at this point going away from tevin coleman you're into the position where yeah i mean if michael carter gets injured then tevin coleman probably becomes involved again but they've given you a strong sign that type Johnson can be a very deep option and then would have big upside in this you know, very sort of receiving heavy role if anything were to happen to Carter. So I think that you have to, and we've added him on a few of our teams. I think that you know, probably in, in some of the co-managed ones, people were like, you know, why does Sean keep adding Johnson for $1 at the end of some of these weeks? But I do think that there is some possibility that we would get value out of him as well. I had kind of read that maybe White was going to start this week and Flacco next week. I don't know that that's going to be the case. Obviously, Flacco is going to be the starter. I think either one of these guys puts you in good position to get, like you mentioned, those high-value touches. Yeah, that's the key is that they both seem like they're going to throw running backs at a good rate, so it's just good either way. <laughs> um, Johnson was uh, 11 percentage points below his – season average snap share in this game as well, which is, you know, part of Michael Carter sort of taking over the backfield was not just having Coleman being inactive, but Ty Johnson's role got cut a little bit, but I do actually really like that call. And the biggest reason, I mean, one, you know, he still ran 34% routes, which is solid for a, you know, a secondary back. But the, the other reason was they used him in the, the green zone. They gave him a carry from the two. They gave him another carry from the one he scored and they called a really late false start. They didn't blow the play dead until after he was in the end zone. At least I didn't hear that. And then they called a false start after the fact, sort of. But we we got a little bit of a peek that they might like Ty Johnson at the goal line as well. He very nearly uh, had a TV, you know, could basically did score a touchdown, but then it was nullified by a pre-snap penalty. And again, it was a weird, a weird one that I couldn't figure out while watching the game. But after that penalty, they did bring Carter in, and he got the carry from the six-yard line. You know, it, it looks like at at best for Carter, he's at least probably going to split some of that work in close. Uh, but for Johnson, as a second second back, to your point, he can catch some passes and potentially even get some touchdowns. You know, if they if they like him as more of a veteran, whatever close runner, we see that sometimes, right? 
Then the most important unimportant running back group is with the Baltimore Ravens. Right after the break here, we'll discuss whether or not Devontae Freeman, uh, by fluking into 12 fantasy points, has earned the right to be the starter, or if we're going to go back to somebody else after the bye. Colm Kelly here, the executive producer of the Road of His Radio podcast network. The wait is over, the NFL season is here, and there's no better time than the present to sign up for a Road of His NFL pass. You'll get access to all of our content, all of our tools, and everything you need to help you for that in-season success. As a loyal podcast listener, you can get yourself a 10% discount to a Road of His NFL pass just by adding the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Go to roadofhis.com forward slash podcast for more information. Let's go get those championships. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So then Freeman scores 12 points. We had him in a number of lineups this week, a situation where it wasn't so clear cut who you needed to play, but that someone might score. Now uh, Freeman barely touches the ball, but he does get what you love to talk about the high value touches. He scores uh, from the goal line there. He gets the receptions late, but Two of those three are with the backup quarterback. We know Lamar Jackson is not going to throw to, to the running backs. We know that Latavius Murray probably is going to be back from this ankle injury at some point relatively soon. It's weird to me that Le'Veon Bell had five carries in this game. I was suggesting we may get a 10-carry, negative five-yard rushing performance from Bell before the season is over. Was there anything here to be excited about in terms of these Ravens running backs? Uh, no. <laughs> I mean, honestly, like, I, I I, just think they're more of a passing team right now. It was interesting with Freeman. You know, he got the work. Uh, he got the, the short work. It was coming out of the two-minute drill. They could have put any back in, you know, and that was one little thing that I made a note of that I thought was interesting. They, they certainly could have easily went to Bell or to Tyson Williams if they felt like that was the right move because they had a break. They had a stoppage. But Freeman was in there, got back-to-back carries, and punched in the touchdown. And then he also ran the most routes, but not by like a large percentage. He only ran routes on 30% of dropbacks. It was a really like thin split or even split or whatever, however you want to call it. He gets the two catches late from, from the backup QB, Tyler Huntley. But Lamar is not really throwing to the backs because he's just so vertical or else he's running. And so – you're not even running more than even close to, to half of the, you know, a drop, a, a route on even close to half of the dropbacks. Cause it's really a three, a three back split on the routes. I don't know. I mean, none of these backs have been very efficient to me. It's still Tyson Williams who has the best shot to do something because he's the one that's actually looked efficient and the backs in this, in this offense that have been good have done it on efficiency. You know, they've been working off of Lamar Jackson's athleticism and, been able to to do some big things when defenses have to key on Jackson in the running game. We haven't really seen Freeman be consistently efficient. We definitely have not seen it from Le'Veon Bell. We haven't seen it from Latavius Murray either. I mean, none of those guys have looked good. Tyson's the one guy that, I mean, he only gets four touches here, but two carries for 10 yards, two receptions for 24. I mean, that's the type of efficiency you're looking for. Again, very, very small sample, but for the court, for the year, if you go look at I mean, I don't have it pulled up right now, but I know if you go look at it, look at things like yards per carry or whatever. I mean, obviously that stat is is sort of fluky, but Devonta Freeman's been good as well. But Tyson Williams, 5.5 yards per carry. Freeman's right there also at 5.5. I 
a big reason Freeman's right there is his, his first carry of the year was on a on like a calendar that was a, a misdirection play that I can't remember who they were playing that week, but completely was missed. And he had a 30 something yard carry. He only has 20 carries for, for 109 yards. Freeman on the year has not really been efficient week by week. Tyson also had a long touchdown run in his first game, but has been more, I think, regularly consistent. I just pull up his game log. He's been over 4.4 yards per carry in four of the five games that he's played. I don't know. He just, to me, looks like the guy that has the ability to be consistently efficient running the ball and and fits the way that you can get value out of a Baltimore running back. And we haven't dropped him from all of the rosters that we were able to add him on early. We have added Freeman to a ton now, too. I, I like that those are the two guys we have in part – you know, once you have someone, then it's almost impossible to not see it a little bit through rose-colored glasses. Or, you know, sometimes you'll swing to the very opposite end of the spectrum where, you know, you're an arch critic because you're frustrated. But I do think that these are the two guys who have the chance to blow up in this offense if it becomes a little bit more balanced as we go along. Freeman really doesn't look that far from, maybe not his prime, but from being decent where, you know, Murray, there's a clear reason why the Saints released him, even though the Saints actually needed a backup runner for Alvin Kamara. And there's a clear reason that Le'Veon Bell was available. Ben, one of the kind of interesting running back backup situations now, and I'm going to propose that I think that this guy is now the number one handcuff in fantasy Joe Mixon consistently drafted one to two rounds ahead of where he should go because people are so enamored with the potential workload and the potential for the offense now for the Cincinnati Bengals. Then he's sitting at only 13 EP per game this season, in part because he's had a lot of games where he couldn't do 100% of the workload, various injuries cropping up. We've seen the Bengals previous to week seven were a much more neutral, you know, run pass split type of team. We've suggested we don't think that's the direction it's going to go, but the biggest positive here is just as explosive as this offense is now trending, I think we're going to have a lot more high-value running back touches, at least in terms of the potential for someone to have a lot of those James Conner types of carries. If something were to happen to Joe Mixon, Samaj P. Ryan now looks like the guy. This was his second straight game in which he was an RB2, scored 14-plus in those two games he had a 46 yard touchdown run here we've had a couple of we've had a couple of splash plays from p ryan this season that kind of undermine the idea and i think in some ways justified i mean he he washed out of his original opportunity in the nfl but it undermines this idea that he's such a plotting backup that you could never really go with him we've also seen him involved in the receiving game now chris evans also sort of hovering as a potential plus receiving back but this week, the split again, 12 touches for P. Ryan, 12 touches for Mixon. P. Ryan a little bit more involved, actually, in the receiving game. This was a, kind of a bad sign for Mixon that he's not targeted in this one. Again, there are some health issues here, but I, I'm pretty excited about the potential workload for Samaje P. Ryan in the case of a Mixon injury. Now, we're not rooting for that. We hope it doesn't happen, uh, but, but he's had some injury issues throughout, and we're suddenly moving into a, just a spot where this offense and the potential for a running back to have that really high EP level, a level that wouldn't even require plus talent for the guy to be a, a huge part of what you do down the stretch. Yeah, I mean, I think we're, we're completely on the same page on some of these this week, which is great. The, the Bengals, we were excited about the Bengals on Sunday night 
and having dug into the game a little bit more, I'm only that much more excited. I haven't actually seen the pass rate over expectation stuff. I know it's floating around on Twitter somewhere. Um, that stuff is, is so great, so useful. But I know that they had a really positive pass rate over expectation because when you look at the game log, they finished 38-24 in terms of pass-run ratio. 38 passes, 24 runs. But their final 13 plays spanning their last four drives were all runs because they got out ahead late and they were running the ball effectively. Mixon had the long TD run and then Pirine had the long TD run. So actually before that, they were at 38 passes and 11 runs. And that's what, Sean, we talked about on Sunday is that the first half, they were throwing with intent. They were throwing to build a lead. They were passing to set up the run. Very much the, you know, the ideal of the modern offense. And it was great to see. It was awesome, you know, for Chase. It was exciting for the, the Higgins volume, even though Higgins didn't really produce here. But that's what we thought the Bengals could be when Burrow was back and 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 looking 100%. It, they were massively pass heavy in this. And some of that was probably because they felt that that was their best way to win this game against the Ravens for, you know, whatever reason, you know, sometimes we just see this schematically. I don't expect every week they're going to come out and throw 38 passes on their first, you know, 49 offensive plays, but super, super positive sign. Right. And then the, the other note, as you talk about the, the backs, I had sort of the exact same take. One thing I will say with the split, was that Pirine got the final eight rushes. So that was eight of his 12 touches in the game. They were all after Mixon's last touch when the game was sort of out of hand, and Pirine has the long TD run, and he's also just running out the clock. He only had three carries and one catch prior to that. And Mixon had 12 carries, no catches. Not really a big workload for Mixon either. The flip side of that is Pirine ran routes on 34% of dropbacks. Mixon only was at 42%. They were very, very close in routes. And again, they didn't throw one time late in the game, in, in garbage time, so to speak, after those late two touchdowns on the ground, the two long touchdown runs. All their passes came early with the game in the balance. And with P. Ryan back this week, he missed last week. They were using him as like a, you know, half of the, the routes and playing quite a bit, running a little bit alongside Mixon, and then obviously getting the work late as well to milk the clock. And it, it almost, you know, you can say like, look, yeah, he, he got all these carries late in a blowout. It almost doesn't matter because some backs do still get that work. And I'm sure you're thinking the same thing as you hear me say that. That's part of the issue with Mixon is he doesn't then get those eight carries late and get to 20 carries. He, he sits at 12. And so that's basically what you led with and the point you made. I thought this game was really, really interesting from the routes perspective at running back. I thought it was really interesting from the pass intent volume and particularly to your point about Piran, this this is probably the most concentrated offense in the NFL right now. We talk about concentrated offenses. There's a few other ones. The Rams are highly concentrated. There's a couple other big ones. This team used only six skill position players. It was the two backs, and then it was Higgins, Chase, Boyd, and Uzama in terms of targets or carries or anything. You didn't have a single other guy get a random target. I mean, this was a... And that's the way it's been pretty much all year. Everything has flown through in the passing game through the three main receivers. So now that we see the pass volume rise and you have the concentration, this is a massive buying opportunity. I mean, I don't know necessarily if the buying window is closed, but like this is you know a massive explosion spot, whatever. Like this, this offense looks fantastic for fantasy. So you talk about Piran being this great handcuff. 
absolutely agree with everything you said about that, how he could fit in, how he could have some of the James Conner touchdown rushes, whatever. If Mixon goes down, maybe Pirine isn't the clear number one back, but it's certainly not going to be a situation with, like we just talked about with Baltimore where they're using three backs and they're splitting it up and all this stuff. These guys at all of their skill position groups are, are basically naming their main dudes other than Mixon, which again goes back to, you know, certainly frustration for Mixon owners, but yeah, a big week for the Bengals in terms of how we should view them and what we should be looking at going forward. Looks like a pass first team. Looks like a concentrated passing game. The receivers look fantastic. I'm excited for Tyler Boyd to finally have a good game. I was worried about him more, but now that I see all his pass volume, I'm like, look, he's clearly third. At the same time, in this type of a pass offense, a guy as good as Tyler Boyd, if they're going to throw 38 times, if they throw 40 times sometimes, he's going to have some games, right? And so there's, I'm not like super, super excited. Did you just sort of... Did you sort of grimace a little bit? Was that a... No, I'm, I'm, I have a lot of Tyler Boyd and I'm, I'm excited that you're excited. Because... <laughs> no, I'm, I've been very concerned throughout the year, but I, I, I'm throwing him in as I'm even excited about him because it is so concentrated. There is a lot of passing. There's got to be some, some meat for him to find on that bone. But anyway, I mean, it, it's an exciting, it's an exciting offense. I completely agree with you on Pierre. And, and and just on a quick digression, I mean, T. Higgins is going to put up some massive points over the second half of the season. I, I hesitate to say it because it's a long time ago now. I try and resist uh, whenever I can, but, it, you know, because it, it's a long time ago. But P. Ryan just really hasn't gotten a significant run at the NFL level to where we can say for sure what he is. And I like to note that when Mixon and P. Ryan were together at Oklahoma, they were stars on relatively the same level. And so, you know, how people played at Oklahoma a long time ago, not super relevant. But P. Ryan, someone I do like and will be including in a lot of dynasty offers as the third guy or the fourth guy. You know, you got to offer four or five guys you're not really trying on that that trade (laughs) deal. Anyway, Ben, we do need to let people go, but we had one guy, and we talk about him all the time. Uh, Sometimes I think listeners are probably like, you know, we know that, DJ Moore is somebody you follow at the same time, because he's someone who is central to some of the things we do. We also get a lot of questions about him when he goes through a stretch like he just had. So I wanted to throw out some stats that I ran across in the Monday column this week. See kind of what you're thinking. Now, some of this actually relates to Jamar Chase research. Our plan at this point is to kind of do a 2022 redraft first round on Thursday to get a little bit of a feel for uh, both redraft and dynasty, because where people are going to go and redraft does give us a little bit of a sense of you know what the dynasty valuations should also be. But I was looking into Chase a little bit. One of the cool things with him, we know how he's setting all these records. Blair has a cool article about it. You'll have seen other cool articles about Chase. He's having this crazy season. One of the things I thought was interesting is that he's one of only four wide receivers to have over 700 air yards and over 200 yards after the catch. There is a kind of a fifth receiver there. Tyreek Hill is only two yards below that in terms of yards after the catch. And this group is interesting because it emphasizes even more kind of where Chase is as a star. So Hill, I just mentioned, Cooper Cup having a season that's almost unfathomable. And then Devonta Adams, the sort of the most decorated wide receiver in the NFL over the past several years again, having a very nice season. The other guy in that group is DJ Moore, who has 829 air yards, 226 yards after the catch. 
And there's been this big split, right? Because over the first four weeks, averaging over 22 points per game, looking like the superstar that we had envisioned and doing the things we talked about before the catch, after the catch, the last three weeks, the Sam Darnold meltdown has taken a lot of that out of play. You know, you pull up some of the numbers for him. He's gone from eight yards per attempt to 4.8. His uh, NFL EPA, so the reality expected points added, dropped from 26.8 to negative 41. So is that a gap? That's a That seems like a gap. Yeah. Uh, Sam Darnold hasn't played well. Matt Rule hasn't necessarily helped him with, with some of the rhetoric there. But then uh, Matt Spencer, Dave Cabin, they put together some really cool things for our Monday review tool. One of the things you can do, you know, is search for these guys who have a really big gap in terms of Whopper and Racer. And so for people who, you know, are, are wanting to get a little bit of a feel for what those stats are, you know, you have the weighted opportunity rating, which is air yards targets and uh, some air yard share. You have Racer, which is the air conversion rate. When we look at the two players who have most underperformed over the last three weeks, you have Terry McLaurin, who actually had a very nice game in week seven, could have been bigger, didn't catch the touchdown, but McLaurin always someone who has this buy low element to his game with uh, the market share of air yards and the dynamism that he has. You're always looking for a little bit better quarterback play, but DJ Moore, the other guy in that group, very high weighted opportunity, uh, which, which you can guess from the overall numbers converting less than half of his air yards over that stretch, then this is one of those situations where it's much easier to buy low in a situation where you have a solid quarterback and you know that just variance is going to pull these guys back. Sometimes we tend to look at every player as if they're in the exact same situation and they're not. I mean, you're going to have different efficiency levels for elite quarterbacks, mediocre quarterbacks, poor quarterbacks, you know, sometimes 50-yard targets don't get hauled in, and sometimes they do. They're more likely to bounce back in a situation where, say, maybe you have a Matt Ryan and a Calvin Ridley or, or something like that. What's your optimism that DJ Moore can start converting some of these opportunities when the situation in Carolina now looks so bleak? Yeah, I mean, it's been really bad the last three weeks. They've scored three offensive touchdowns over the, the three games. Darnold, you mentioned some of the EPA stuff. He went from 25 completions and 297 passing yards per game in the first four weeks down to 18 completions, 167 passing yards over the last three. So lost 130 passing yards per game. Just this massive split from the first four games to the next three. He's lost seven completions per game. Some of that has been accuracy issues. Some of it has been drops as well. Morris had, I think, at least one or two. But Robbie Anderson has been a big, big part of that. There's a few things. One, Moore has still gotten 10 targets per game over these last three games, and they haven't been, you know, productive offensively. They haven't run a lot of plays. They haven't, you know, it's not just the, you know, the lack of efficiency that's led to fewer completions and things like that. It's also just like when you're not producing offensively, you run fewer plays and all of that. The other element is I just think that there's a, like, look, Darnold's obviously playing bad, but there's a, there's a, a, a sequencing that exists and we we overweight it and it happens the way i like to think about it is this idea of like normally distributed curves and you know you know you have like a scatter plot of all the players and there's you know one one standard deviation plus or minus is you know whatever percentage i think it <laughs> i wish i wish i remembered normally distributed curves better but i'm pretty sure 
two standard deviations plus or minus from the average, you'd expect something like 95% of all of the data points in just like a randomized, you know, what I'm describing is just like, there's, there's random chance, right? You expect a lot of the, of the um, points to be within that range, but there are like 5% that just by random, even if everything was normally distributed, things would be like randomly scattered outside of multiple deviations from an average. And we have such a huge sample in the NFL of players. The point I'm trying to make, we have hundreds of players we should actually expect every year that there are some players that just have weird sequencing in their games or weird patterns in their game logs that don't really say a lot. And and you, I go all the way back to when I worked right under uh, Fantasy Douche at Rotoviz, and he would talk about how the sequencing does not matter. The um, the spike weeks and all those things tend to not matter. They tend to not be predictive. And I've heard people through the years. Um, confirm that research many times. And I've always, always kept that really close in mind. So what I'm basically trying to say here is the first four games still matter. They, they didn't not happen. They still existed, but we're putting way, way more weight on the past three games. And yeah, I mean, like right now, it feels like Sam Darnold's never going to play another good game. He just was horrible against the Giants, but they go to Atlanta next week. They have the Patriots the week after. Maybe the Patriots are going to crush him. I don't know. I mean... Uh, Belichick can drop some some defensive game plans that can confuse confusable quarterbacks. Let's put it that way. They have the Cardinals after that. Not necessarily a great game. But the the Panthers, I actually looked at the strength of schedule streaming app while writing Stealing Signals this week. Going into uh, next week, what games that they've already played, they've had the 10th hardest fantasy wide receiver slate so far. The rest of the year, they have the second easiest remaining schedule for fantasy wide receivers. So, um, a couple of those games, I'm just looking at their three most, you know, upcoming games. A couple of those maybe aren't amazing, but they have some favorable wide receiver matchups coming up. They've actually had some that they've gone through that have not necessarily been super favorable. We would have liked to see them get back on track against the Giants. It didn't happen. The other two games against uh, Minnesota and the Eagles, I think were a little bit tougher matchups, if I'm not mistaken, based on the, the streaming app. Regardless, sometimes we just get these sequences, we get these lulls, we get these patterns. Darnold's not going to be this bad as he's been over these three games the rest of the year. He's probably not going to be as good as he was in the first four games, but he's probably going to fall somewhere in between. And that's going to be ultimately good enough, I think, for DJ Moore. One thing else I would point to is that Moore right now, even though he has all that yak that you talked about, he's only averaging eight yards per target. He's been drawing a massive amount of volume, way more you know, definitely a step up, not necessarily way more than, especially his second season. He was, he was pretty strong at drawing volume that year as well, but a step up from anything we've seen prior. That was a step up we were hoping for the usage at all depths, all of those things we talked about, but he's actually 8.0 yards per target is typically close to average for overseivers. It's, it's okay. But for more, it's bad because more adds yards after the catch is a rookie. He was at 9.6. The next year he was at 8.7. The next year he was at 10.1 last year. And that, in that downfield role, that kind of pulls up the yards per target, but his career low so far is 8.7. He's almost a full yard below that right now. I definitely expect that to bounce back. I Look, there's a lot of reasons to look at the volume that he's earning and the ways that he's produced. And then also just how bad they were as a team in these three games in a row. And right now, because it's been three in a row, it feels like it's going to be horrible. And I'm getting all sorts of questions about more as well. It, it's easy to look at that and be like, oh, look, 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 he hasn't scored a touchdown in three games. Well, they've scored three offensive touchdowns. I mean, literally, I think Chuba Hubbard had one. Robbie Anderson had one. 
Tommy Tremble had one. That was their whole three games. Well, Tommy Tremble too is is emerging. He's someone to put in there deep. I've got three random unimportant comments to your feedback here. Number one, which is that it sounds to me like you believe that DJ Moore belongs in this group with Devontae Adams, Cooper Cup, Jamar Chase, and Tyreek Hill. Number two is that I'm also hearing you uh, sort of in a roundabout way being skeptical of the fact that Robbie Anderson has only caught six of his last 20 targets, even though he's only been targeted 7.8 yards down the field, which is really uh, a heroically inefficient stretch there. That that seems borderline impossible. And then the third thing is that you're a Walker super fan. So if Darnold gets benched, you are buying more DJ Moore. Oh, yeah. I mean, PJ Walker did not look good in this Giants game. I was super excited for a stretch there to see what we would get out of him. He did not look good. But in Walker's one start last year, Moore had like one of his best games of the year. I think it was like 11 targets, seven catches, 100 and something yards. He was in the downfield role last year. And I kept saying week after week, it's Teddy Bridgewater that can't get him the ball. And so when PJ Walker came in, XFL superstar, tossed the ball around for the Houston, uh, man, what were they? The Houston Rough Riders, I think it was. He was throwing deep shots to Cam Phillips and uh, a former NFLer who I can't remember, but one of the guys that we were on at one point was their other big receiver. It's been a, it's been a couple of years since I got really into the XFL for a month and then it died. I know you're big on the XFL and the AAF, so guys like Darnus Johnson, you you have them scouted. We're, we're, we're set from that I, I mean, look, I was trying to tell you last week, man. Darnus Johnson is the, is the truth. <laughs> uh, it was the Houston Roughnecks. The Houston Roughnecks. It was Cam Phillips, and I, I got to figure out who this other receiver was. I was going to say the CFL folks are not going to be happy with you appropriating their team names. No, there's, a, there's multiple Rough Riders in the CFL, right? I, it seems like it. <laughs> I think there's, if, there, if there aren't, there should be. I think there's two different Rough Riders. Sammy Coates. What's the other guy? Sammy Coates. And they also had Khalil Lewis. Sammy Coates wasn't very good, but I played him in DFS a bunch of times. All right, Ben, that's going to do it for today. Do you have Do you have something to take us out with? What was the most important stat that we haven't covered from Stealing Signals? That we haven't covered? I mean, I had the Bengals as my biggest signal. I mean, I just think that's going to be awesome. There's stuff that people know. Dallas Goddard, Kyle Pitts having a deep threat wide receiver like, you know, 18.5 ADOT was just fantastic. I think Cordero Patterson is another one that people know. But season high, 73% of snaps. The role followed sort of the efficiency and the talent. We talked about it for several weeks. That was very exciting to see for anyone who, you know, any of our zero RB guys who've added Patterson. It looks like you have a starter the rest of the year. I mean, full stop, you know. Colin Kelly will be excited to hear that. He added, remember, we'll have to check with Colin and see how many Rough Riders there are in the Irish Football League that we've learned a lot about on a recent episode of Rotoviz Overtime. That will take us to the end today. We appreciate you listening to this episode of Ceiling Bands. We've got some cool stuff on the horizon for you. So uh, make sure you subscribe to our feed, leave us a rating and review if you can. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to Ceiling Signals. Uh, it's there are a lot of dots in it but all you have to do is look for ben gretch on substack uh, if you want you can get a 10 percent discount to rotoviz with the coupon code rv radio 2021 at checkout and as colin likes to say have a good one
everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.